Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Best of the Best is powered by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform used by creative teams at more than 200,000 companies worldwide to manage their work their way. To learn more and to get $50 in Airtable credit, visit Airtable.com slash Third Coast. That's Airtable.com slash Third Coast, all lowercase, no spaces. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in PRX, I'm Palace Shaw, and this is Best of the Best. Third Coast is an independent nonprofit arts organization in Chicago that celebrates the art and craft of narrative audio storytelling. We do a lot of things to further this mission, but our favorite thing is sharing the best audio stories we hear with you. Each year, we host an international competition to recognize the most impactful, the most moving, and the most innovative audio stories. Now in its 20th year, the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition is a beloved tradition. This year, we received over 700 entries from around the world. We listened to every single entry, and then we enlisted an incredibly talented group of judges to do the difficult job of selecting just 11 stories as the winners of this competition. These are the stories we're thrilled to present to you on Best of the Best. Now, normally, we'd celebrate these amazing winning pieces in person, on stage, at an awards ceremony, complete with red carpet and everything. But this year is far from normal. We can't travel to the places we love or visit the people who matter to us most. So, let us transport you, now, through the magic of audio storytelling, to worlds and experiences beyond your own front door. Today, we're bringing you two winning stories, each about young men sifting through memories to better understand who they've become. We begin this hour with our highest award, the 2020 Best Documentary Gold Award winner. Producer Axel Cacoutier is a sound artist who was born in Côte d'Ivoire and is now based in the UK. But as we'll hear in this story, no single sentence or word can capture an entire person's identity. How to Remember is a deeply personal journey through time and memory. In his first-ever audio documentary, Axel meditates on the conflicting historical, racial, and familial elements that have shaped who he is. Just a note, this piece includes archival tape containing anti-Black racist slurs. Here's the 2020 Best Documentary Gold Award-winning piece, How to Remember. You don't know what it means to be black because you don't know what it means to be one thing. Who is when you know you're a brother and a son, a lover and a friend? Sometimes you say you're Ivorian, and other times you say je suis Ivoirien, which means you feel more French than British until you go to France, or your French isn't French enough. When you come back, you feel more British than Ivorian until you're offered tea or learn something about this country that puts you on the outside again. 
So you work and save enough to buy a ticket to fly back to where you were born. But even there, you're different. Your hair, your clothes and mannerisms betray any sense of you being a native. And as a result, you become a standard of both admiration and envy to loved ones and strangers alike. Your French may be Ivoirien enough, but what about your Bete, Jula, Aini? <laughs> Mother tongues you never needed to learn in order to survive because you were over there. But what about here? Would you be able to make it? Just like that, after all the questioning, the doubts and endless soul searching, you accidentally find yourself on the outside again. But this time it's okay, because you weren't pushed. You're on the beach at the edge of the world, and it's warm here, as well as kind. You have the time space and the sea to remind you of who you are before the world told you you were black. People are really rather afraid that this country might be rather swamped by people with a different culture. And you know, the British character has done so much for democracy, for law, and done so much throughout the world. Having mass interbreeding, that must lead ultimately to a mulatto Britain. We feel that if we have a mulatto population in the future, that must mean the downfall of the civilization and culture of our country, which we hold so dear. The whites have become black, a particular sort of violent, destructive, nihilistic, gangster culture has become the fashion. The dirty black devil. <laughs> the trouble with nignogs is they've got no self-control. One third of my class are black children. Then I've got a bunch of half-caste children. I've got one little girl who's stunningly beautiful. She fell over, scraped all her face. I admit I was slightly surprised that where she scraped all her face, it's all pink underneath. As far as I'm concerned, if there is a racialising dynamic in society today, it's this form of identity politics which effectively says you are a victim, you are oppressed, and that these people over the other side are really hate you and are looking to thwart you in some kind of way. Great Britain is a small country, you said enough. We don't want any more immigrants. We want Britain to be Britain. And I did it for maybe a week, hoping some black bastard would come out of a pub and have a go at me about something, you know, so that I could kill him. You had to dig deep to find it, to make sense of yourself again. Separating what's really you from whatever you picked up to keep going in this world. It can be both liberating and terrifying because maybe, for the first time, you learn you're not the familiar mask you have to wear. You're not this terrible thing that needs to be grateful for being here. And you don't need to soften the letters of your name for them to say it. You have never been too loud or too smart. An angel or the devil. In fact, you have never been any of the things you mysteriously felt obliged to be because you realize it's never been about you. You are black because you need to be because they need you to be in order to stay white. Fourteen world powers are discussing the future of the entire continent and how to carve it up. 
European powers had been setting up colonies in Africa for decades. Now they decided which parts of the continent they would each be allowed to treat as their own. This is how you find yourself in a game you never asked to play. In a hall of mirrors where you see them more than you see you. But you can't afford to forget yourself because knowing who you are is your way out. But after the mirrors and distractions, the names, countries, and the sea, after finding yourself on the outside, this time alone in the dark, separating from what you're not, can you truly say who you are? Look, we are in the car on the way to Auntie Julie. I mean, Auntie Eric. I mean, also. <laughs> <laughs> Mom's driving. Who is he, man? Who is he? What art thou? I don't know. Um, Axel or Daniel. Also known as Daniel in this house. Yeah. In this house. Okay, so straight down to business. Yeah, I think um, um yeah, I that's think, definitely yeah, a conversation like with Ben to have. Um, Funny enough, I had a dream um, on Wednesday, Wednesday morning, of you just. Um, messaging me again just to see how I am. There is peace and pain, misery and joy. There are happy longings and fantastic terrors that keep you alive. There is art and childhood memories, little victories and bigger failures, but all the more reason to be proud. You have felt deep and imperfect things, but you've also known love in some of its faces and all of its names. But knowing this won't save you from discrimination and prejudice. It won't stop the suspicious stares or awkward followings in spaces you know you belong. Knowing this won't stop the clutched purses or the road crossings away or towards you with the want to hurt or more. But it gives a context to the courage, a reason for the patience, and the power to being human before you were black. That was How to Remember, produced by Axel Kakudier and edited by Eleanor McDowell for Shortcuts from BBC Radio 4. It won the 2020 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Best Documentary Gold Award. You're listening to Best of the Best. We spoke to Axel about the making of this piece. What got you into sound in the first place? Um, wow. Yeah, it was definitely a happy accident. I think 
in terms of like working in audio, working with audio, creating stuff, it was mainly music. Um, and it still is in many respects. You know, I, I saw myself as a struggling artist and poet trying to make it in the music industry rather than trying to produce stuff for myself, center myself and my story. And there's this happy, wonderful audio space where people tell stories using sound. But it wasn't really until like, yeah, I got permission to make How to Remember uh, from Falling Tree and Ello McDowell that, um, yeah, this all came came to place. Yeah, I think it's really cool to hear about all of the different places this audio came from and maybe what your intention was. in. And I'm wondering, like, do you have a particular audience in mind, like when you made this piece? And now that it's been made, is there a particular audience that you'd like to hear it? I think I was uh, it was a catharsis. It was mainly for me, my younger self. But now, like, the desire for me is to have as many black people listen to it as possible. Um, because, like, I I can't be the only one that's confused about what this racialization means. Like, it really felt like I want to start by confessing that I don't know what it means to be black. And I know I've got all these conflicting elements about myself that I'm frankly shy or embarrassed to say, but I'm just going to lay it out. And... The surprising thing which has been great was, um, is, has been, <laughs> how many people from different backgrounds and different ages have connected with it. Um, it's a, it's an immigrant story. It's a story from anyone from that, that is the child of the diaspora. It may not be exclusively blackness. It's anything to do with identity. I guess there's some sort of thread that one can connect with. And that's the best thing about art. You can't predict what people will connect with, but it's amazing when they do. I'm interested in how you thought through like getting in and out of that first montage. Yeah, that I, I call that the racist Britain collection. Um, the sad thing is that it could be updated every year. I kind of wanted to make a British version of I'm Not Your Negro, uh, which I find very powerful. So I kind of wanted to inject that kind of spirit of James Baldwin's musing and meditations on his society and essentially me on the beach in Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa. I'm harboring all these different nationalities and identities and the sea is a kind of place and space that you can wash away all of that and let go. And what I'm letting go of is essentially the world telling me I'm black and all that icky, nasty stuff that I'm essentially throwing onto the listener now. It's like, this is this is what I've internalized. This is what I've had to deal with. Um, and it's uncomfortable, but yeah, this is reality, face it. Yeah, I just thought that was a really brilliant moment. Um, what excites you about continuing to make work like this? What I'm most excited for now is, is a new unknown. And I, I've now, I feel like I've unlocked something here in myself and being able to speak to people. When I'm talking to myself in an honest way, I'm not as alone as I think, basically. Um, and I think that's just really encouraging. So because of that, I'm more empowered to speak on things that confuse me. Axel Kakudier, winner of the 2020 Best Documentary Gold Award. You can find links to more of Axel's audio work and poetry at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best. I'm Paula Shaw. Coming up after the break, a man struggles to forgive himself as he recalls his relationship with his mother. Stay with us. Sandra. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Pala Shah. On Best of the Best, we bring you the winners of our annual Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. This hour, we're listening to two winning pieces that each plunge headfirst into the depths of childhood memories. Our next story follows poet Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr. In his 2020 Best Documentary, Silver Award-winning piece, Saeed weaves a masterful story of family, loss, and forgiveness. Here's Borders Between Us. Hey, Google, pause. I don't know what's on the other side, but I know what it's like being here. How hard even simple things can be, like touching a slab of stone with your mother's name on it, the dirt from your father's plot still stamped into your favorite blue jeans. I can't tell you how long until you get to the place where you are in control. But we were in control. (sighs) It always starts off so good for me. Like here, I just listen to some Afro beats so my mood is right. I'm alone in my room and I start writing about my parents. About how much I miss them. How much I appreciate them for all the sacrifices they made for me. Walk as tall as your father. Be as humble as your mother. But then it always gets to this point. This one point. Where I start to write about my mother. Oh, no, I don't like that sentence. This is always where I start doubting myself. How does a humble person... What does a humble person do? I don't know the answer to that question because I barely knew my mother. And it's hard to write about a person you barely knew. But here I am, trying anyway. Walk as tall as your father, be as slow to speak as your mother, and know that she just wanted you to be better than her. I delete, I revise, but in the end, I always know when I'm lying to myself. I always know when I'm making things up because I want to sound cool or because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I know when I'm bullshitting. But you know there's an end, and when you're gone, people won't remember your regrets. I, even that line, I don't even fucking... What is that? What am I talking about there? People won't remember your regrets. What? People won't... Of course people won't remember your regrets. I'm struggling to write about my mother here because I don't want to appear ungrateful. Since she passed 10 years ago, the only things I ever say about her is how much I appreciate her for bringing me to America. I'm pretty sure it's what every good immigrant child is supposed to do. In my case, since my mother died, I can't even write about the fights we had and the long silences between us. Just listen to how mad I sound here. When you're gone, people won't remember your regrets. Like, what? Shut the fuck up. Ugh, okay, whatever. So what's the story here? I'm gonna tell you what the story is here. But first, I gotta get over this block. I have to try to write honestly about the relationship I had with my mother. The room. My room couldn't have been that messy when she walked in. Maybe a stray sock stuck out from underneath my bed, a bowl from last night's dinner on the nightstand, a t-shirt in front of the hamper, a jacket off its hanger, everything just slightly out of place. But it was disorganized enough that my mother shouted my name like the world was ending. Saeed! When I reached the room, she didn't say a word. Her eyes did all the talking. For months now, they had become the color of the hallway light. So yellow, it looked like she'd swallowed the bulb. She shuffled over towards me. She moved slower these days, but her anger was still one of the healthiest things about her. It was the one thing the chemo hadn't taken away. When my mother started yelling, I couldn't figure out why she was so upset. I was 16, 
and my room wasn't even that messy. But what my mother understood that I didn't was that her world was ending. She was running out of time, had a few months at best, and if she hadn't gotten through to me yet, these small lessons of manhood, like keeping your room clean, brushing your teeth, applying deodorant on in the morning, if she was losing these tiny battles, then what would happen to me? Who would help me become a man when she was gone? And what would my failure say about her as a mother? I couldn't read between those lines. I just kept thinking my room was not that messy. She talked and yelled until I grew sick of her voice. I needed her to shut up. I don't remember what I said, but I remember the shock that fell across her face when I said it. Like I gave her a glimpse of the disappointment I would become. Like I was no longer her son. She pursed her lips, shuffled back to her room, and shut the door behind her. And as I stomped back down the stairs, I said to myself the words that would haunt me all these years since. I wish you would just die already and get it over with. I wish you would just die. I took a stand against my mother when she was at her lowest. I betrayed her and felt good about it. I finally planted my flag of rebellion against her and won. But now, ten years later, I need to try and take that flag down and put it away. Just months after she gave birth to me in Sierra Leone, my mother was faced with a choice. She could stay in Freetown with my father and they could raise their newborn together as a family, or she could make one last trip to America. If she went to America, she could renew her visa, which was expiring in a few months. She could work and she could start filling out the necessary paperwork to become a citizen. At the time, it was clear to my parents that this choice made the most sense. Besides, in just a couple of years, they thought, all the immigration documents would be approved and my father and I could join her in the States. There, the love between a wife and her husband could be renewed and the bond between a mother and a son could be formed before son even spoke his first words. In just a few short years, our family could be reunited. So when I was about one year old, my mother left. She gifted me my father's name, Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr. And she boarded a plane for America. But by the time I'm three years old, I'm still in Sierra Leone. My father throws me a birthday party. In a photo, I'm dressed in a navy blue minisuit, a yellow dress shirt underneath a tiny waistcoat. I'm snot-nosed and smiling next to my birthday cake while other children dance around me. At four years old, I'm speaking. I'm saying enough words now to be able to respond yes or no. My father is often pulling me away from playtime and putting a phone up to my ear. The woman on the other end of the phone asks me how school is going, if my father is taking good care of me. I say yes, no, whatever will get me back to my friends the fastest. By the time I'm five years old, I can understand what my father means when he says the woman on the other end of the phone is your mother. I understand that it means something important that she's in America and that America is a good place to be. But I don't understand how to feel about this woman I don't remember meeting. How is she the same or different from all the women in Sierra Leone who have been helping my father to raise me? At age six, my father tells me she's coming to visit. Months later, my mother walks through our doors. And when I see her face for the first time, I'm not sure how to react. Her name is Aminata. She has skin much lighter than mine, and her smile is warm and bright. The gold jewelry around her wrists, her rows of necklaces, her sweet scent. She looks like a gift but a gift that doesn't quite belong to me. 
Over the next two weeks, I spend almost every night in bed with my mother and father. I wake up within reach of both my parents for the first time I can remember. And I'm holding my mother the closest. At seven, my father tells me it's almost time. The papers filed were now approved. The flight would be purchased soon. My mother was waiting. At eight years old, I board a plane for America. My mother had sacrificed eight years away from us for this moment, but it didn't look the way they expected. My papers were the only ones approved, not my father's. I'd be joining her, but I'd be going alone. I take one last look at my father before stepping onto the plane. He smiles. He waves. He would never join us. The next eight years I spent with my mother in America were not what I had expected. Her smile was still bright, but I rarely saw it. And when she came home after long hours of tending to the homes of white folks, my mother didn't have the time or the patience to play with me, to joke, to make up for all the years we'd lost with each other. She'd rented a room in a small apartment for the two of us, and we shared the same bed again. But most nights we slept on opposite ends. And you're watching Disney Channel. I remember watching Disney Channel, admiring the white mothers whose only job seemed to be making their children happy. I said I was sorry. Don't stop the love. We'll make a deal. You come home when you're supposed to, and from now on, no bedtime. I remember begging my mother to sign me up for sports, hoping she would show up to games and yell obnoxiously things like, That's my boy! But as she worked well into the night, I walked home alone after games, warmed up cold food from the fridge, sat in front of the television, and wished I was white. If I wanted her to be like the white moms on Disney Channel, then she wanted me to be like a young Barack Obama, the African kid who brought home straight A's and would go on to be so successful he could save her from the night shift. But the only thing I brought home from school was trouble. I stole. I fought. I cheated on tests. I got into trouble because trouble gave me an identity. One that was more interesting than the one my mother had in mind for me. My mother and I, it always felt like we were not who we wanted each other to be. Like the only thing we had in common was that we were trying to survive in America. By the time I was 14, we'd gotten word that my father died back home. And at 16, I'm standing in the hallway with my mother again. She tells me she's found a lump. A few months later, she was gone too. Another poem for my mother. For the first few years of my life, there was a voice on the other end of the line that I did not recognize. I heard it on my birthday, on Eid, and whenever I was sick. The voice always seemed to call when there was something to celebrate or something that needed mending. It was my mother's voice, reminding me that she was always there, even when she wasn't. We held a whole relationship over the phone, from dial tone to ring to the operator announcing that the credit was almost finished, We talked on borrowed time, trying to maintain connection an ocean apart. Even though all she did was ask me questions and all I did was answer yes or no, it brought me some small comfort, her voice. A few days after she died, I tried to call her. I laughed at myself when I picked up the phone. What was it that I had to say to this woman that made me foolish enough to forget that she was no longer here? I think I finally know the answer. I want to do what she did for me growing up. I want to ask her questions. What What happened happened to the woman woman on the phone? Why were you so so different different in America? America? Was I a disappointment to you? Was I the reason you died? 
How are you doing today? Well, I'm good. Thank God. And maybe it's not too late to know what my mother would say. Lovely out there. Lovely day. Sunny. So I traveled back across the ocean to find out. So I'm working on this story about getting to know my mom a little bit more and um, kind of working through the difficulties between me and her's relationship, but also um, just trying to figure out who she was outside of me and what what led to the short time that me and her had together. Like what um, I think by now, you know, I have maybe you don't, but. I have like a lot of regrets and things that I wish I could have said to her and things I wish were different between me and her. Um, and I thought you might be one of the best people to help me work through some of that stuff because you knew her and you and her aren't that far in age. And uh, yeah. Is, the, now, is that all the introduction? <laughs> yeah, that's the introduction. Okay, well, we're on to it. Okay. I'm sitting with my mother's sister, Kadija Tusuma, or as I like to call her, Auntie Kadi. We're in her modest apartment on the west end of London. She sits up in bed and rests her back on a pile of pillows. From almost any angle, Auntie Kadi's face resembles my mother's. The smooth brown cheekbones, how they rise all the way up to meet her small eyes when she smiles, how those eyes can command respect and invite you in at the same damn time. From this angle, though, her left side, I see the only difference between her and my mother. A single gold tooth. Every time she speaks, it shines. Even though they share similar features, Antikari jokes that when they were younger, people always said my mother was the pretty one. And she agreed. Very beautiful. A woman that's loving. Oh my God, she was classy. Everyone loves her. People all... Oh, my God. I'm telling you, Saeed, your mom. She just came like flower. When you look at her, what was your favorite feature about her? Her smile. Her smile. When she smiles at you, honestly, you love a human being. Saeed, I'm sure you saw that. I did see that. It wasn't hard to notice my mother's smile and radiant beauty. But it was hard to know the woman behind it. I had no idea what she was like growing up, before America. Very athletic. She was sporty. We have so many medals, cups in our house, just in her name. Would you guys sometimes talk about, um, you know, what you wanted to be when you grow up and like your aspirations and your hopes and dreams? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be a lot of stuff because she was very intelligent. She wanted to be a secretary. When she was about my age, in her early 20s, my mother traveled to Europe, spent holidays in Switzerland, attended school in England, and earned her certificate as a secretary. Then she moved back home, got her dream job, before marrying my father. This portrait my aunt was painting of a younger Aminata, it didn't quite match the mother I knew. Why was she so reserved? Reserved. Why? You were not the only one she was, like, quiet to. Auntie Kadi says my mother was always the kind of person who kept to herself, even from her sisters. But something about coming to America made her retreat even more into herself. It made it worse. She wasn't social. All she does was work. Work, work, work. Work, home. My mother and I could be in the same room and not say much to each other. We could be listening to the same song that we both liked, but never sing along together. Our distance may have been because she was tired and stressed from work. I got that. But I still resented her. Besides, back in Sierra Leone, I was used to living with a parent who made me feel special. My father. It was just different. He was he was a different person. I mean, you know him. Like, he was very likable. He was, when he cares about you, he's, you know plays with you like he would take me to the beach every Sunday and he would give me he spoiled me he gave me anything I ever wanted and I just felt like the center of his world it was unique it was like the only I've never experienced anything like that and so when I think about him I don't have any regrets 
like even when he died, I was sad, but like I don't, I just feel so at peace with that. I, I, I think your mother was just trying to be, to make you be a man. Everything she does for you with you was like I'm preparing him for tomorrow, and she would tell me, "I said, let him a man, let him be man." I can remember that, Sayide. Lafam, Naman. Don't worry, he's a man, my aunt says. That was my mother's motto for raising me. But I wasn't a man. I was a boy. And that young, it was hard to tell the difference between tough love and being pushed away. So I ran straight into the arms of trouble. A list of petty crimes I committed growing up. There was a time I fought a kid over a bag of chips. The time I stole CDs from the mall so I could burn copies and raise money for new sneakers. The time I roamed the streets with other kids who were searching for something their parents couldn't give. We popped tires on parked cars for fun and called each other family. Then, after I discovered what you could do with a cigarette lighter and a can of Axe body spray, my school had to punish me for bringing a weapon onto school grounds. A flamethrower. I was expelled. That's the time I felt more more of a disappointment to her than any other time. Uh, that's the time I felt like, wow, like I really am just not a good son, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not ever gonna get this right. And I'm wondering, I guess, if she ever talked to you about that. Never, never, never said. She had never talked bad thing, anything bad about you. Really? Yeah. Serious. Nothing bad. There was a... I, I got... It, it was... I just remember it being so bad. Like, I would get suspended. It's a, it's I got expelled. Experience. Like, it was, like, so bad. That's, that's, no. Listen. Her parents would discipline you. The only time she had said something is when those boys attack you. She called me here. She was so angry. I mean, furious. Very angry. Oh, right. The boys attacking me. I had forgotten all about this story. During my terror of pissing people off, I had pissed off the wrong kid. After school, he showed up to my house while my mom was at work. I saw him through the peephole flanked by two guys bigger than him, but I stepped out anyway. Fuck it. Next thing I knew, I was eating size 9 Nike boots and Air Forces as they stomped me out on my welcome mat. After a few seconds of furious kicks and punches to my curled-up body, they ran away. And I got up, dusted myself off, and yelled something into the wind about how I'd get them back, knowing damn well I wouldn't. And I went inside. Days later, my mom asked me why I was limping, and I told her, she asked if I was okay. I said yes, and we left it at that. After all the stress I'd put her through, I didn't expect her to have sympathy for another one of my troubles. And I thought she didn't. But apparently, she'd called my aunt. You may have noticed my auntie Kari sometimes slips into Creole. She's doing that here. She's saying that my mother called her after the boys attacked me. When she picked up the phone, apparently my mom said to her, some boys went and beat up Saeed. I'm going to go see the head teacher today. My stomach has been in knots. The pain feels like giving birth to a child again. They're trying to kill my child. I swear to God, if those boys touch my son again, I'll find a gun for them. Mon just laughed her off, the way she's laughing with me now. She told her, if you find a gun for those boys, they'll lock you up in that country. Mom said, I don't care. Let them lock me up. They had given you a good visit. She was so angry. This caught me completely by surprise. My mother was always angry at me because I gave her lots to be angry about. But she was willing to pick up a gun and fight. For me. Huh. I've never seen the white moms on Disney Channel do that. But why would my mom hide that from me? Because she was all by herself and the children, all by herself. 
My aunt says my mother wasn't the kind of person who laughed all the time or even told you what was on her mind and how much she loved you. She was the kind of person who thought hiding your emotions is the best way to protect the people you love. Aminata don't play. She doesn't know how to dance. Did you catch that? She said my mother didn't know how to dance. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. Wait, she doesn't know how to dance? Obviously. It's <laughs> the way my mother dances. <laughs> sometimes I just wish I could just tell her, like, the reason I was doing all this stuff. And I, I just wish I could just tell her, like, I'm not bad. I'm not a bad kid. When she would, like, talk to me and tell me the things that was how I was destroying my life, basically, and how I was, like, disappointing her, I would I would understand her, you know? It was not like I couldn't understand. I would un- it's like I was seeing myself through her eyes, and I could see what she was saying, but I just couldn't really translate that to my life because other things were more important, you know? Like, getting other kids to like me at that age was, like, more important to me than listening to my mom, you know? It was really, it was, it was really hard for me that I, that I couldn't tell her that, you know, that I couldn't just tell her I'm not doing this to hurt you. I just don't know what is going on with my life right now. My mother was buried in Sierra Leone. My papers weren't right, so I couldn't attend the funeral. I could never visit the cemetery or kneel beside the headstone to forgive and be forgiven, to make amends, to sit and simply cry. They were just the photos of the funeral that I never kept and the poems I wrote that never felt enough. But in February of this year, 10 years after she died, I went home and I saw her grave for the first time. I didn't know what I would say to her. But as the tears began, the only thing I could utter was, I'm sorry. Everything she'd worked for had finally come to pass. I had the good job, the American passport, the freedom to travel the world and chase my dreams just as she had when she was younger. But I was too late. I know we don't always get to see the results of our sacrifices but I was sorry that she couldn't see me become the man she'd fought so hard to create. I was sorry I couldn't save her from the night shift, from myself, before we ran out of time. You don't have to be, you were a child, Said, What do you want to give your mom at that age? Excuse me, a child have to play, a child have to be disturbing. Don't do that. She was just being hard on you for you to be a better person. You understand? You never you've not you haven't done nothing, okay? But it felt like it felt like my responsibility. it just feels like I was responsible for something. It just feels like no, I no, 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 no. It feels like I couldn't stop something or I was supposed to make things better I was the person she was grooming to be the person to help her I but and I put her through so much stuff it just felt like it was my fault no 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 Said I was there you didn't know she she had never felt any bad thing about you Said no you were a, a poor baby you were small well, I don't say that. I beg you. You haven't done nothing, nothing wrong. You were her idol. She was just being firm with you for you to be a, a man for today. That's not your fault. And maybe my aunt is right. It's perfectly normal that as a teenager, trouble is all I could afford to give my mother. And her saying this, it almost frees me. But I know I haven't told my aunt the whole truth. There's still one thing that hasn't let me go. The thing I couldn't even bring myself to ask my mother forgiveness for at her grave. There's one more thing that um, I feel like I need to say to you. 
Yeah, I've never said this to anyone before. I've never told anyone this before, but this is a thing that happened. And um, we were home together. I think it was just me and her. And, and uh, I had, I think I hadn't cleaned my room or like it was just like kind of messy. And um, I started to tell her about the room. She was like yelling. She was like so. My mother's anger. Angry. Like she was the kind of. My anger. I started yelling back at her. I don't even know. And the thing I said after the argument. Die. Just die because I can't do this anymore. I wish she would just die already. I wish she would just die. Do you think that thing that I said to myself where I felt like I was wishing my mom was dead, do you think that's something that she could forgive, that any mother could forgive? Why not? Said is how you felt. She had upset you. Said if he, even if he had said it, she heard it. It's just what you feel like saying that moment, Said. You understand? Your mom is a very forgiving person. She will. Even me, I had said bad, bad things. like. It might have been my eyes turning red or my voice beginning to crack, but she could tell I wasn't convinced that my mother would have forgiven me. So my aunt kept making her case. She told me a story about when she was young and angry at my mother. I mean, I was bad. I'm serious, side. My mom and her other sisters were going out. They were going to a theater to go and watch some concerts. I went to do laundry. They left me. <laughs> when she found out that they'd left to go to the concert without her, she was so angry. She prayed that God would crash their car. I see Papa Godfather let God make them get big, big accidents. Me, I still want to say it. You can't believe it. They had, they almost died. When my mom got back home, she told the family they'd gotten into an accident, a pretty bad one. Their car had flipped over on the way to the concert. And my grandma, who had heard my aunt cursing her sisters earlier in the day, immediately launched into yelling at Auntie Kadi, chasing her around the house to beat her, calling her a witch. Oh, that witch, guy, that witch, that witch, man, and they're a witch. <laughs> As I laughed at how ridiculous this whole scene must have been, my aunt getting her ass whipped for something that was obviously not real, I started to realize what she was trying to say. In our family, maybe in every family, we get pissed off and say things we don't mean. Sometimes we wish bad things on each other. And if those things come to pass, maybe somebody gives you a name, like witch, and punishes you. Or maybe you give yourself a name, like ungrateful or a disappointment, and you spend years punishing yourself. But in reality, I'm no more of a disappointment than my aunt was a witch. It's obvious, I know. But if I couldn't hear it from my mother, I needed to hear it from her sister. If Azikadi is capable of any magic, it's in her laughter. The way she laughs at what I thought was my greatest regret. The way she makes my shame vanish into thin air. Ah, don't go sleep, yeah. <laughs> my aunt just scoffs at me and tells me to go to sleep. She removes her gold crown and crawls into bed. And I'm left feeling happier than I've ever felt about my mother. Borders between us. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about sacrifice. From the time I was born, you gave up so much of your own life to bring me to America. And when I arrived, I saw how that decision was still taking its toll on you, on us. So I learned to make peace with your silence and anger. I learned not to question it, to not write about it. But 10 years after your death, I felt like I owed it to your sacrifices to tell the full story. We weren't close. By the time I met you in America, we were reunited, yes, but there were still borders between us. We didn't share displays of unconditional love, affection, or forgiveness. It felt like we were immigrants to each other, two people speaking different languages, trying to make things work in a new country. You, learning to dance from job to job, 
traveling by bus and yellow taxi with nothing but tokens and lip balm in your purse, finding ways to provide for the new eight-year-old child in your life, trying to keep us on our feet long enough until dad could join. You must have been so lonely. You must have been disappointed with the way things turned out, with how little you gained for sacrificing so much. At the very least, you needed to raise a man. And me, so tired of holding my tongue about the pressures of being a mother's last hope, I let go and said the wrong thing at the wrong time. But now, I know I didn't know any better. Maybe neither of us did. But now I do know. So, so some, some days, days I pick up my favorite up photo, my of, favorite you smiling, photo of you smiling, and I put on one of your favorite songs. That 80s Lisa Stansfield track about finding the person you love. I hold the small portrait of your face with both hands outstretched in front of me, and I dance with you, pretending we always held each other this close, that we always smiled at each other this way, that we never gave up anything. That was Borders Between Us, produced by Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr. and Jay Allison for Transom.org. Borders Between Us won the 2020 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Best Documentary Silver Award. To hear more from Saeed Tijan Thomas, look for Resistance, a podcast covering the front lines of the movement for Black Lives. You can find links to more incredible stories from Transom and to the podcast Resistance at thirdcoastfestival.org. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Palace Shaw. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Third Coast's executive director is Shirley Alfaro. The artistic director is Maya Goldberg-Safer. And the program director is Emily Kennedy. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Menaki Foundation, Arts for Illinois, the National Endowment for the Arts, Illinois Humanities, Agadena Foundation, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. And of course, a very special thanks to our many individual contributors. Third Coast is an independent nonprofit arts organization originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. You can hear winning pieces from all 20 years of our competition, as well as thousands of outstanding audio stories from around the world at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Best of the Best. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.